Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to The Reason We Learn. I'm your host, Deb Philman. If this is your first time to the channel, welcome. This is where you will get information about education in America, everything that's going on, and some ideas for how you as a parent or an educator can, you know, better understand it, deal with it, whatever you're looking for. We try to cover it here. Um, please consider subscribing to the channel if you like this sort of content. And also like and share this broadcast so other people will be able to join us in the chat and ask questions. I have a wonderful guest today, Robert Pondiscio. Did I say it correctly? Please tell me I said it correctly. Okay. And a 20-year veteran of the education field. Um, on and off again, teacher, very prolific education writer. And he is a, a senior fellow and vice president for external affairs at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm at AEI. I'm at the American. Oh, Enterprise. that's right. Now you're at AEI. I'm sorry. You need yeah. to fix your website, sir. <laughs> yeah. um, and he wrote a book, which I want you all to get and read. It's called How the Other Half Learns. If you're really concerned about how kids who are living in poverty or what some people will refer to as the historically marginalized populations of the United States, how they are learning, what's the real scoop on that and what works for them and what doesn't, this is a book you need to read. And we are going to talk a little bit about it, but obviously we're not going to go into the whole story on the air. So welcome, Robert. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk to us. Thanks for your interest. Who canceled on you that you have to have me? Nobody. I've been what I sent you. If you go back to like maybe January at least or beyond November, I think I wrote you a note asking you to come on. And then Max Eden was here, your colleague oh, okay. from AEI. He was here. He says, you really need to have Robert on. I said, well, maybe you could put a bug in his ear to answer his DMs. <laughs> full, full to another one. But no, all kidding aside, I'm, 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 I'm pleased and flattered that you asked. So thanks for having well, me. Thank you. And I and as I mentioned before the show, I have followed your work for many years, reading your writings and so forth. Um, and I just, you know, I want to get this information to a broader audience. That's the purpose of this channel. I think most people, myself included, until I started, even though I have a master's in education myself, I sort of an opposite experience. I meant to be a teacher and was not long in the classroom. Um, but I did end up homeschooling for a while and so forth. But I started researching at least 10 years ago when I had to put my own children into the public school. I was like, what's really going on? This doesn't, I remember from graduate school, Palo Freire, I'm like, what's happening? And I realized even to this day with all the coverage it's getting, I think because of COVID, most people don't really know what's actually going on. They have sort of a vague notion. It's similar to when they were in school and then they hear stuff in the news, but none of us knows what's to, what to believe with the news, right? So you are a little bit of a reality check for us, being that you are ear to the ground every day on this. So first, what I'd love for you to do is give us a quick rundown on how you got into this, your career and that sort of thing, just so we have background. Sure, sure. Well, and, and let's come back to this idea about knowing what's going on in yeah. our children's school, because this is unwittingly the kind of the through line of, of my career, both, you know, as a classroom teacher and since leaving the classroom full time. I mean, I kind of stumbled into the world of education reform and education policy, but I brought a teacher lens to it. And it was kind of a surprise to me, still is, the degree to which uh, folks in the policy world kind of view what happens on the ground in schools as either all the same or beneath their interest. I mean, I, I, I joke that for years I've been the guy who says, oh yeah, teacher quality, charter schools, testing, data, yeah, okay, fine. 
can we talk about what the kids do all day? And exactly. it exactly it just sort of surprised me um, to find out that this was just not really something that folks in the policy and um, you know, think tank world and whatnot really paid that much attention to. I mean, I'm not a genius. I just kind of was interested in this and it kind of yeah. turned into be, being a, a bit of a niche. Um, and I've kind of mined it like a you know vein of ore uh, ever, ever since. But, but I mean, since you were you know kind enough to ask, I mean, I'll just give you my brief background uh, until almost literally 20 years ago, maybe, you know, right around this time of year, 20 years ago, um, until then, uh, I was in the media business. I was I was working at Business Week magazine at the time. I'd been at Time magazine before that, did radio news, you know, hither and yon for, for a number of years. So I was basically, you know, in the news business. Um, and then uh, there, there's, a, there's a program in New York City called the New York City Teaching Fellows, which is... Um, an alternative certification program for, um, as they say, mid-career professionals. So I thought, oh well, I'm I'm a mid-career professional. I'm going to sign up for two years and 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 go teach. I, I'd been involved, still am, uh, with doing some not-for-profit board work in the South Bronx, and I thought, well, this would be kind of an interesting. You know, I was kind of interested in what was going on in the community. So why don't I go teach in the South Bronx for for, for two years? Um, Turns out that mid-career professional meant, you know, you'd been out of college for 20 minutes. So, you know, I was the gray beard at almost 40. All of my uh, fellow teachers in my cohort were, you know, um, in their early 20s, had had one job or some such. So I was that that was kind of entertaining. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, more earnestly, I signed up for two years. I stayed for five. What was supposed to be my my mid-career public service stint kind of evolved unwittingly into a second career. Um, and, and I think it's because, you know, once you do kind of get that ear to the ground, as you say, view of it, it's, it's just hard to walk away, you know, especially if you don't, I know it <laughs> that I have where, where, you know, I describe my evolution as a teacher as kind of, you know, beginning with, um, willing suspension of disbelief where, you know, I, I, I was teaching fifth grade had not been in a fifth grade classroom since I had been a fifth grader, you know, 30 years uh, before that. And, and, and you, you know, you taught any number of, you know, uh, techniques and, and, and pedagogies and whatnot. And your first thought is, hmm, that, that doesn't resemble the way I, I remember learning how to read or going to school. But what do I know? I mean, I haven't, haven't been in school in 30 years. Um, and, and then the next step is, um, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is working. Um, you know, you discover stuff on your own, at least, you know, my, my case. And, and then you go from that willing suspense of disbelief to skepticism to, frankly, you know, something akin to, you know, militants and anger. Like, this is really not good for kids. Um, and I became kind of an unwitting curriculum and pedagogy guy, um, mostly because I just felt like I was not, you know, being trained. And it wasn't because I was an alternate alternative certification guy. It was just, you know, we just aren't giving kids like, you know, my students in the South Bronx, what they need to, to, to learn and grow and thrive. So right. you know, again, I, it was, there was never this moment where I thought this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It just kind of evolved. Yep. And how did you transition from that into education writing, like covering it in that respect? Same, same thing. In other words, once you, once you become, you know, with, with that, what I'm calling willing suspension of disbelief to skepticism, to militants, well, then you realize, hey, wait a minute, you know, um, there's a whole bunch of people out there who need to know this. And be, and I guess, you know, not unnaturally, because I've been, you know, in the media for my entire adult life, you see an opportunity to kind of take the lessons you've learned um, and and share them with others. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, it's still teaching, it's just, just a question of who I'm teaching. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's, I didn't have the years in the classroom as, that you've had. I did, as I mentioned, I, I homeschooled my kids until I had to go into public school and sort of mid-elementary school. Um, so not that long, but I'd always been tutoring and so forth. And similar, once I started realizing what was going on, I felt like I have to tell people. I have to just yeah. be, yeah. mostly because I knew they had a different view than was reality. So I just felt like, um, you know, the information girl, like, Hey, did you know, you know, this kind of thing. Plus I, because I gave everybody the benefit of the doubt that they must not know. <laughs> it's, I look around and say like, surely they don't know if they knew they, they would be pressing for things to be different. Um, speaking no, of those, sorry, go ahead. I, was just, I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, my, my particular interest is literacy. Uh, I mean, just to mm -hmm. give some background as to where I was teaching, um, in New York City is, you know, obviously massive. It's the largest school district in in, in the U.S. Um, it's broken into community school districts. Uh, I was teaching in the South Bronx, which was uh, community school district number seven. And, mm -hmm. you know, 20 years ago and still now, District 7 is the lowest scoring school or lowest scoring district in the city of New York. The elementary school where I was placed, PS 277, was then, and I think still is, the lowest scoring school in District 7. So I was literally, by definition, in the lowest of the low. Um, and and I mean, I've told this story for years, but you know, the, the, the year before I started teaching, the, the, the fourth grade class, my now fifth graders, less than or fewer than one in five of them could read on grade level. Right. Or um, or on, on the debate standards, based on the debate standards of the, the New York State you know, reading test at the time. So I, you know, I, I thought not unsensibly that I was going to have a classroom with 80 percent of kids who were literally non-readers. Like they couldn't what I now know to call decode that that, that was not the case. Every single kid I've ever taught um, was was a decoder, some more fluent than others, but everybody could read what they couldn't do was comprehend. And and this is why I became militant, because. My school was a, um, uh, and, and I shouldn't say militant, that's that's the wrong word. This is why I became an, an, an adamant. Adamant? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, a devotee or fetishist. Um, <laughs> you know what? I was being trained by by Teachers College and the Lucy Calkins reading and writing program. Uh, you know, I was a demonstration classroom for it. Um, and what we were being taught was basically, look, you know, the kids aren't reading above grade level because it's not about their experience. It's not engaging to them, you know, all these kind of, you know, reading homilies. And then I discovered this guy, Edie Hirsch Jr., who I know you and I share a, a bit of a devotion to. Um, and, you know, this was the one theorist who described what I saw in my South Bronx classroom every single day, kids who could decode but not comprehend where the Lucy Calkins of the world were saying it's because of engagement and interest. Hirsch was saying, no, it's because of background knowledge. And, and, and in other words, he was describing exactly, you know, what I was seeing because, you know, the, the curriculum of that school was so limited, not because people are bad people, but just because it was, you know, there were other fashionable ideas about what they needed. And when I would bring up Hirsch's work, which again, I kind of discovered on my own, in my professional development and in grad school classes, almost invariably, I'd hear some, you know, uh, version of, oh, that's that dead white guy stuff. Nobody takes that seriously. And I would just be taken aback. I, I, I say, well, wait a minute, that's, that's not what his work is about at all. It's about, you know, background knowledge. It's about vocabulary. It's about language proficiency. This is the guy who has diagnosed what our, our students need and they're not getting. And and so I mean this based is based on data too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is I mean just based on cognitive science, frankly. Yeah. So I mean, why did this become kind of you know my my passion education? 
and, and my second career. I mean, Hirsch's work has become my work. It's, it's simply because when I became aware of how, um, frankly, poorly regarded or misunderstood his work was, it was like, well, wait a minute, I've got a you know background in, in the media and communications world. I, I can be Hirsch's John the Baptist, because this is exactly, if we, if we think we're going to close the achievement gap, we're not going to do it un, until or unless we, we, we grapple with this. So, you know, right. that, that's how his, his, his ideas kind of became kind of my, my, my flavor and, and my work. Yeah, well, I'm glad they did because I think you're you're propagating them, and more and more people are becoming aware, if not of him personally, of the ideas. And for those who aren't necessarily familiar, um, one of the core ideas of his is that we need to return. We were once there to a knowledge and content based curriculum, as opposed to what might be called a self directed or self led student led kind of a, a curriculum where yeah. the students discover and do inquiry. If you've heard the word inquiry in, in terms of what the teachers are talking about so that you have a little more direct instruction from the teachers, which has gone out of fashion. There used to be this, you know, they call it actually in a derogatory way, sage on a stage, Versus oh, yeah. a gu guide on the side, yeah. they make it sound all touchy feely and nice. But even the guide on the side is retreated to the Chromebook in front of your face, um, and the guide is sitting up front on doing something else. So it's what Edie Hirsch, what I what I loved in the book I read um, that you had provided notes for uh, uh, about how to educate a citizen is he not only explains about the science of reading and the cognition, you know, the 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 um, a comprehension issue and the, the knowledge, but he ta talks about how it's actually backwards that they're more engaged oh. if they picked the learning. Actually, every single piece of research, if you really look at the real research, not the theoretical stuff, you will see that the knowledge-based schools, the kids are much happier, more engaged, more, you know, devoted to their reading. They're more avid readers. They choose their own books. They'll read a book from start to finish um, because they have, as you pointed out, more broad base of knowledge from which to, you know, think about what they want to read and then to understand it when they do read it. Some people have called it the romance of learning. Yeah. Without the background knowledge, which you, you know, as a young child might get from your parents reading to or just, you know, having it direct educated to you, you you don't even know what you like. You don't know what yeah. you want. There's, there's, um, I, I find that um, the hardest thing for literate people to kind of wrap their heads around is how much assumed knowledge and vocabulary you're, you're carrying around in your head. I mean, we are, as readers, we're, it's like the cliche about the fish doesn't know that he's in water. We are unaware of the the, the amount of knowledge and, and language uh, that uh, vocabulary that we're swimming in, ver you know, the, 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 the verbal water that we're swimming in, so to speak. Yes. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I, I give a long talk about this and, you know, I, um, I, I always say, like, if, if you forget nothing, if you remember nothing else I say, remember these five words, reading is not a skill. Because everything I was taught as a teacher is that reading is a skill. It's like, you know, throwing a ball or riding a bike. That's how we teach it. That's how we test it. Once you learn how to ride one bike, you can ride any bike, right? You've mm -hmm. learned mastered the skill of bike riding. Well, you know, reading is not that way. Reading, you know, you, you can read. And I would say, like, if you want to test this proposition, you know, go pick up a college textbook of a subject you've never studied, you know, yes. or, or read like if you're a technical, you know, idiot like I am, like look at the instructions for, for installing a new operating system on your computer and, and you will actually find or remind yourself what it feels like to to read 
as a child, you know, you, you can feel your lips moving, you know, you follow along, you read and reread. You didn't suddenly become a bad reader. You're just reading out of your depth. But, you know, because we take so much of our own knowledge for granted, we forget that's what it's like for, for, you know, for, for young kids who are not, don't have a, a great deal of language and, and background knowledge. That's what reading everything is like for them. I mean, exactly. so in other words, you can't practice your way, you know, uh, to using metacognitive reading strategies or, or skills and strategies. It doesn't go away. You know, you, you have to, you, you have to know a little bit. I mean, proficient readers, know a little about a lot of things and that's that's what makes them uh, at least in, in in part proficient readers and and there's there's no workaround for that there's no you know northwest passage of that's going to get get past knowing stuff you have to know stuff exactly and somewhere along the line uh that fell out of fashion probably back in the 60s you know we started mm -hmm. late 50s or so and there were new pedagogies and new ideas and and um so where are we now? So we know that we've moved far away from the knowledge based. Where would you say we are now, if you had to describe it? It's uh, this is okay. This 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 is why I'm going to spend another twenty years, right? Because everything every time you know, like Sisyphus, Sisyphus rolls that rock up the hill, it rolls back down. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm 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 out of the business of promoting the common core. I've got the you know the tire tracks on my back. I'll I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> Um, but I always feel the need to defend myself by saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm not a standards guy. I'm a curriculum guy. And Common Core, uh, there, was, there was a talk that I gave at the time, which I called the 57 most important words in education reform. And it, it, and it referred to a passage in the Common Core supplementary materials, the 57 words of which I boiled down to basically, Hirsch was right. <laughs> you know, in other <laughs> words, it, it made the point that these standards don't mean anything unless kids have a wealth of vocabulary and background knowledge. So I said, I don't care what you think about Common Core. Read this. This See, see what this says? Um, and and for, for, you know, a brief shining moment, I mean, because Hirsch's kind of reputation has ebbed and flowed. And, and I mean, Dan Willingham, my, my friend, who's a cognitive scientist at University of, uh, of Virginia, wrote a piece some years ago where he described Hirsch's most famous book, Cultural Literacy, as the most misunderstood education book for the last 50 years, and I think he's right. So, I mean, we, we rediscover Hirsch's work every couple of years, and, you know, the last time we did it in a big way was during Common Core, and and mm -hmm. and things were, there was some momentum. Um, Natalie Wexler more recently wrote a book, didn't um, cite Hirsch too heavily, but it was basically Hirsch, the knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, knowledge gap her book was. You know, so it's, it's out there. But then along comes, um, frankly, the current movement um, for you know diversity, equity, and inclusion for anti-racism pedagogy, and it's and it's we're right back where we started in terms of no, you know, it has to be about kids, it has to be about their lives you know, for for different reasons, not for literacy, but for reasons of identity. So once again, you know, if you're if you know if you're if you're a Hersheyan, you you kind of have to remind teachers that uh, it's look, it's not enough to 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 give kids a steady diet of stuff that reflects their experience. I'm not just dis dismissive of that stuff. It's important. Um, but, you know, rightly or wrongly, whether you like it or not, there is a dominant language culture and 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 you have to prepare children to participate in that. It won't happen, you know, automatically. Um, I mean, sorry, we're, we're dwelling on Hirsch to, to the exclusion of all other topics here. But I mean, Hirsch's basic insight is that, look, this is how language works. Literate speakers and writers make assumptions about what their listeners and readers know. And right. uh, language relies on that. 
to, to, to work. Right. When those assumptions are correct, language is fluid and effortless. When those when assumptions are incorrect, things fall apart. Um, mm -hmm. The analogy I've used for years is like, imagine a, a reading passage is like a child's game of Jenga, the block games. You know, you can, you can plug and imagine that every single block is a bit of background knowledge or a vocabulary word. You can pluck out some of them and it stands. Then what happens? You pull out one too many, the entire thing collapses. Um, so if you're not mindful of that, if all you do is 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 make kids education about the stuff that they already know and like or are interested in pursuing themselves, if you right. don't consciously, intentionally help build that body of knowledge that literate um, uh, people know and assume you know, well, then you're almost imposing a form of illiteracy on children. Um, yeah, I agree. I do want to ask you, though, you know, one of the challenges with the the diversity, equity, inclusion movement, you know, aside from, you know, the fact that it's happening concurrently with people still doing things like 3Q and Lucy Calkins and these methods that, you know, we, we say colloquially don't follow the science of reading and a, a lot of parents are starting to pick up on that. Yeah. Um, when you move, if, even if we could get people in education, moving more towards a knowledge base, the problem seems to be that the people running education right now, teachers unions, teachers, the, t the teacher colleges have want to emphasize dismantling that dominant knowledge. They, they've explicitly said that's dead white people's stuff. That's dead white men's stuff. That doesn't, you know, we need to dismantle that it's a system of oppression, that all the knowledge you're talking about as being the dominant cultural knowledge is stuff they actively don't want the kids to have. And they're actually not even apologetic about it anymore. They're saying it's, it's bad for them and we need to remake yeah. the world in this new way. So there's that component. So what I am concerned about, and as I was reading his book, I thought, I've seen them do this before. They take something that's starting to pick up on popularity and say, we decided we're going to go with knowledge base. You know, you've all asked us to do it. We're going to do it. Yep. But they decide what the knowledge is. Knowledge? And suddenly we have the ethic, ethnic studies curriculum and the African-American curriculum and the Raza is rising. And, you know, George Washington's a bad man. You know, this is the new knowledge. So it's not... <laughs> Every kid, I always feel the need to, to to somewhat defend myself here. I've literally never had a single student in front of me that was not black or brown, low income, inner city. Right. Like that's all exclusively ever taught in Harlem in the South Bronx. Um, I, I, I so I, I don't want to, I don't need to apologize for this, so to speak. I mean that's that, that's what got me interested in this sure. work was the unfairness of, of the education that we were giving to, to, and that's objectively true. I mean, oh, well, that's I been one of the, the problems I've had is I've told people, I'm like, these inequities actually are technically real. And so it's really true. They are just real. They, they are yeah, they're real. full yeah. stuff. The, 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 the question is how you diagnose those inequities and how you ameliorate them. Right. Correct. Yeah. And that's where this gets, um, this, this, this gets mm -hmm. controversial. Look, you know, I, I, I don't wake up in the morning looking to pick fights. Um, sure. You know, I've written a few things over the years that have gotten me in some hot water. I, I've taken to ruefully joking that 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 the day I really do want to pick a fight and really want to get myself in hot water, I'm going to write a piece with the title "Language Doesn't Give an F What You Think." Um, you know, because that's basically what this means. In other words, you, we cannot impose our will upon the English language. You don't have to like the fact that there is a dominant language culture, but there is a dominant language culture. Now you have to make a decision. 
do you want to change the world for children or do you want to prepare children for the world? Those are both really, really hard things to do. One of them's a lot harder than the other. And, and I feel like there's this kind of romantic idea. And, and I get it because, you know, again, I'm deeply caught up in the fortunes of, of, of kids of color in, in this country. That's my job. Um, but we have this idea that, that we can, by tailoring the curriculum to their interests, um, that we can make, we can, we should change the world for them as opposed to preparing them for the world. Mm -hmm. I, I wish we could do that, you know, I, I, but I've seen no evidence that it works. Yeah. And I think too, we, have strayed from what we used to know and take for granted that children are children. So in other words, it, it, the, the social contract, the hidden, you know, the assumptions that we used to have were, were that adults take care of children and adults have the, now, you know, not all obviously, but that it's presumed that there are people in the adult section of the world who deal with solving the complex problems that dog us and they're always there. Okay. That it's actually borderline abusive to take problems created by adults, whether they're in the emotional realm or the physical realm and place them at the doorstep of children and say, it's your obligation to fix this or else horrible yeah. things will happen. You've, you've written about how we're almost like marinating our kids in this negativity. There was a paragraph that you have. Do you mind if I read it? Cause it's Please. like, it's okay. It's, it's just one paragraph, but I, it's so perfectly captured this concept. You said by any reasonable measure, the world is safer and more stable today than at any time in living memory. Where'd you go? <laughs> oh, there you are. Um, in the living memory of most Americans, adults are more active in children's lives um, today than in previous generations. But at the same time, we play a less reassuring role. This is particularly true in schools where the curriculum and school culture seem nearly to revel in the bad and the broken, suggesting to children that they have suffered the great misfortune to have been born into a country that is racist to its core, whose founding documents were lies when written, and where democracy is hanging by a thread. Not that it matters, since we're just a few short ways, years away from irreversible climate catastrophe, all but certain to render the world spent and burned out husk by the time they're adults. So, Ouch. yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you read it like, yeah, that, that, that's like frighteningly accurate, right? That was so, the cover story of uh, last month's Commentary Magazine. And I kind of, you know, if, if you're a fan of commentary as I am, John Podoritz, you know, is always kind of, you know, self-mocking what they do is saying we, we, we dwell in crushing morosity. So I... Kind of felt the need to raise the bar and uh, you know give them some crushing morality wow. but i mean earnestly I think it is kind of kind of true and yeah. and I, I i view that i mean my my side hustle in education is civic education um for a couple of years i taught um a a senior seminar in civics for democracy prep which is a charter school in 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 harlem um, so I'm very kind of, you know, up to speed on and interested in the world of civic education, action civics, all this stuff. And I think undeniably there is a, a thread there. Um, we did it at Democracy Prep that suggests to kids and even says it overtly, look, you know, we're preparing you to change the world, to go out and, you know, to be active and activist, et cetera. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, I think uh, any good education kind of teaches kids where the levers are and, and, and where to pull or how to pull them. So to speak, you know, you want kids to, to leave school with a sense of, of interest and agency and engagement. Those are all good, good things. 
but let's tap the brakes here, right? In other words, let's make sure that we leaven the loaf and, and invest kids in doing that work. Let's not just, you know, have their education constantly, you know, a, a parade of horribles about how terrible everything is. Um, you know, the country's irredeemably racist. Climate change is going to destroy us, et cetera, et cetera. Good luck, kids. Here's the keys. Like, who who wants to be part of that world, you know? Well, exactly. And also, it 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 also, in my opinion, it does two things. First, it sort of tells them all the adults, including us, you know, the ones teaching We've you and the ones failed. you we all failed. We suck. You know, so why should they respect us at all? Why should they respect any of the rules or any of the things that we've done? Because people who have left them such a broken world really don't necessarily deserve that much respect, especially when there's so much evil infused in the discussion, like irredeemably race. I mean, that's evil, right? If you really believe that, that that's not even if, it, if you claimed it was unintentional, how could so many millions of people walk around unintentionally being evil? That's pretty dark. And then we, so there's that. And the second piece is because they don't have that knowledge, the background knowledge that you described, whether it's in science or math or history or any of that, that we're telling them to be very angry about something. We're telling them to go fix it, but we haven't given them the tools. So even if you're talking to seniors in a senior seminar, I think somewhere deep down in their core, they know like, this is huge guys. And I'm really pissed off, but you have to fit like they are going to realize they don't either don't have the tools or the only tool they have is to tear it down like anger, which isn't really constructive. So we're not teaching, in my opinion, constructive activism or this thought that, you know, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to get really good at math and science. I'm going to go out there and become a client scientist and I'm going to do everything I can on the ground to deal with this. But first I need to know these things. We're not doing yeah, that. I think that's right. I mean, you know, there, there is, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but there is a, you know, a, a rich psychiatric literature that suggests uh, your so-called primal beliefs, you know, what you, your view of the world, is the world a good place or a bad place, are people mostly good or mostly bad, um, really uh, affects your mental health and, and yeah. your motivation. So I think, you know, we have kind of an obligation to, um, you know, to, to ensure we're not, you know, uh, yes, be clear-eyed. You know, no one's suggesting you know uh, viewing viewing the world through rose-colored glasses, as it sure. were. But 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 I think we have a bit of a moral obligation to to get kids invested, a, a, as it were. You know, to, in other words, if a kid leaves us at age seventeen or eighteen and they're not excited about something—college, a job opportunity, enlisting in the military—if they're if they are not fully bought in to you know American life and civil society and engage and excited to get on with it, well, then we failed, right? It's some right. it's serious level. Yuval Levin had a fantastic piece. I think I quoted it in that commentary piece you referenced a moment ago, um, where he 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 described, and I'm, you know, Yuval's brilliant. I'm not going to be able to paraphrase him anything um, other than badly, where he described kind of a new face of disorder in this country, where we're used to thinking of disorder as an excess of passions, like lives leaving the rail because we can't control our impulses, um, toward, you know, whether it's sex or drug, drugs or crime or whatnot, you know, like that's the chaos is how we're used to thinking of disorder. In his telling, you know, and the data is, is persuasive here, we now have this kind of disordered passivity. I think that was his phrase. You know, the, the, the failure to launch, as it were, you know, think of the cliche of the 30-year-old the, the who's still on mom's couch who's just not engaged with the world. So in other words, and you can look at all the data one way or the other, you could say, 
Oh, look, the divorce rate is down. Well, yeah, because marriage is down. Oh, look, teen pregnancy is 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 down. Well, yes, because child rearing is is, is down. In other words, you know, we we may be kind of missing the missing the main point here, which is that we're just not getting our kids engaged uh, with 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 adult life in the way we used to. And my, the open question in my mind is, what's different? Is it kids or is it us that's changed? And I, I suspect I can't give you data, but I suggest the the the, the answer is that we have changed as as yeah. as parents, as adults, as people. You know, we, we we're just not. It's, and it's ironic, right? Because you know, people of our generation are used to being a lot more engaged in our children's lives than our parents were with us. I mean, I. I, I sometimes joke like I know I had parents, you know. All <laughs> right. I was a latchkey kid exactly. <laughs> and a single. Well, and a single I, parent, I know they would so. yell at me if I didn't come home, you know, <laughs> by the time the streetlights came on. But they were yeah, not exactly. the presence in, in my life. But there was still this sense that you know, there's they're in charge, they're competent, um, you know, and, and and you end up kind of internalizing kind of their interests and values, etc. And and it's it's strange, right? So as as engaged as we might be now in in our children's lives we're also a little bit depressed on their behalf i'm not sure where we as adults are as bought into uh, you know values in american civil society as our as our parents were something has gone missing here i'm kind of intrigued to kind of you know isolate what that is yeah that's uh you're familiar with jeremy adams no he wrote um he wrote a book called um i think it's called hollowed out and it's about today's generation and how he describes them as effectively sort of hollow. Mm. And he talks about what you just said, that there doesn't seem to be, you know, that engagement, that sense of uh, curiosity, joy. They don't really have a sense of what's the point of any of this. And there's a lot of fixation. There's so much fixation on the negative and you know, fleeting messages, nothing they can really hold on to, nothing that grounds them. We had, even if our parents weren't necessarily around, we may have had, you know, our friend group in the neighborhood, or we would go riding our bikes, or um, the things we like to do for entertainment were a little more participatory. Even if you weren't involved in sports, if you went to the movies, you physically went to the movies. Like you got up, you left your house, you rode your bike, you did your thing. So everything involved a little more effort and mm -hmm. They, in addition to being infantilized and not having enough free reign to just go do their thing physically, we've got these. And of course, they see us on them. They're on them. And so life, right, we do it. But they don't have the background we do of where like, yeah, and now I put it down and go do other things. They don't have that. They just have this. And the earlier yeah. they start, you know. So I think it's a confluence of things. It's a really good book. Oh, sure. um, but, you know. Yes, the adults always, you know, create the conditions that the kids have adapted to that world that we have created. So that's all the more reason I feel like it's wrong to go into the classroom and not do everything in your power to, you know, be excited and passionate and joyful and grateful and add to, as you said, don't put on rose colored glasses. Everything is wonderful, but just talk about the successes. So let's say, for example, you want to talk about racism in America because it's a real, it was, you know, it was until to a certain degree is, but if you instead present it in terms of the, you know, how bad it was, the progress that was made, the success that was made, what was successful, what didn't work out so great, where do we still have problems, compare, contrast, kids need to see progress. We seem to be like progressophobics, as Bill Maher says, where well, we don't yeah. want to teach our children that things have gotten better. I, I mean, I, I suppose without getting political, 
uh, you can make the case that um, you know, the, the progressive impulse is that, and I mean, you know, political progressive as opposed to educational progressives, there, 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 there is a difference. Um, they're kind of invested in a narrative of, of America as a country that is badly in need of radical transformation and reform. So if that's it's kind of brand, <laughs> if that's the lens through which, you know, you view, um, you know, American life and culture, then it should not surprise anybody that that's going to color your, you know, your, 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 your teaching and pedagogy, as it were, or, or curriculum and pedagogy. So that's, that's not entirely surprising. Um, look, I, I think I made this point. I know I made this point in the, in that commentary piece. Um, you know, I'm 59 years old. Um, the idea, whenever one, one of my younger colleagues talks about how terrible things are, we've never been more divided, it's never been more unstable. It's like, what? Are you out of your place? Like, kid, pull up a chair. Let me tell you about the 60s and 70s. Um, where you know I mean, the 1860s too. <laughs> well, yeah, I wasn't. I was. I was not. I not know. Alive, I know. I didn't I know. miss by much, but I was not alive then. <laughs> I mean, within within our lifetime, we we had assassinations. We had you know 30,000 you know dead soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, it, there was a book uh, called uh, Days of Rage by Brian Burrow, which which blew me away. No pun intended. About you know the, the the weather underground and the the uh, FALN and the, the kind of the, the the homegrown terrorist movements of the 60s and 70s, from from memory, forgive me if I get this data point wrong. I think there were like 2,000 domestic bombings in a single year. I think 1971 right. or 1972. The, the idea, like, you, you think we're we're in a bad way because we yell at each other on Twitter? Goodness gracious, no. We, no. we were killing each other literally. Our, and to your point in the 1860s, um, if you read Ron Chernow's recent book about uh, Ulysses S. Grant, I, 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 I had forgotten just the, the depraved level of violence that, 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 that we had during Reconstruction. So the idea that somehow it's never been worse is, is not just um, ahistorical, it's naive. Oh, it could get worse. Let's be clear. It could oh, get worse. for sure. But it the is other kind thing, of appalling, the, the 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 lack of historical knowledge that we have, and and how we just kind of, you know, dramatize our own experience and saying, oh, it's never been worse. So, in other words, I guess the moral of the story to connect the dots, there's really almost no excuse for communicating to children how bad things are. Again, not let's not teach kids that things are, you know, that that they live in the best of all possible worlds. It could always be better, um, but it's just simply not just. Um, morally wrongheaded, but historically inaccurate to suggest to them um, that there is something uniquely bad about the days in which they are, they, 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 right. they are living. Or it, not only that, but I think we're also getting it wrong if we focus on political division, whatever. I think to your point before about apathy, Yeah, I mean, the one thing we could at least say in the 60s is that they're still, with the exception of the extreme extremes, I would say the average person on the street still had a set of kind of shared core values that, you know, freedom of speech was important. I mean, there you always had those people who are like, lock them up, you know, but, but again, that was more extreme. Where yeah. I see us more divided now is in terms of the average person's animosity to the average person who isn't necessarily, uh, you know, a dirty haired hippie or yeah. a like buttoned up FBI agent. We're talking about just your neighbor who would like to punch you out because you're not wearing a mask or or you voted yeah. the wrong way or whatever. That to me feels and I don't remember. I'm only 56, but I, <laughs> like, I don't literally remember the 60s. I remember the early 70s, though. And I but I read a lot about it. And 
I just have the impression and from talking to my, you know, my dad and my grandparents and things that as horrible as it was out there, like you're describing, um, you know, Twitter played out on the street, you know, we, we just had like kind of this, no, nobody was really going, you know, as a general daily commentary, like, yep, everything about America sucks. Or converse quite accurate. I mean, there certainly no. was um, no, nobody, on, but on, on the left during Vietnam. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, if you remember, you know, the the or, or have read about the the, the anti-war protest, there was a deep yes. stream of anti-Americanism. I mean, all those those underground uh, terrorist movements were were a response to you know a real deep antipathy to to American right. life and society. So I'm I, thinking I, I, of I, like. Joe Average person who isn't oh, in that movie. And I'm just thinking out loud here, so I'll reserve yeah. the right to change my mind about this. But I think what and is, I could be wrong because, like I said, I don't remember it. Yeah. But that's, I think, the perception that people have right now is that if the I may, animosity I think, we have to each other. I think the difference is, and and this cuts both ways as well. There was more of a standard common culture, in other words. Yes. Um, and even at 56, you were old enough to remember three network news anchors and time in Newsweek, for example, where no 24 we, hour stuff. <laughs> we didn't have 57 channels, let alone 570 yeah. channels. We didn't have social media. Um, so I think all of these, you know, the the, the strains of, of discontent that we have are are not new. Um, but now we, you know, they, they are our primary sources in, in many instances. In other words, that for good or for ill, we had a more homogenized uh, common culture, um, you know, 50, 60 years ago. That's gone. It's never coming back. So I think these these differences existed. It's just you didn't you didn't dwell, not dwell on them the, the, the way we do now unavoidably. Right. And how did that translate into the classroom? So in other words, Everything going on in the 60s, you know, it's happening out there. Um, I mean, I remember duck and cover drills in the 70s, but beyond that, and we saw like a film, a little short film about Vietnam and troops coming home because it was just at the tail end of that. But beyond that, I remember, and, and it could be rose colored glasses here, but I remember not knowing where my teacher stood on any of us. On any of it. So, in other words, all that was presented to me about things going on in current events, yeah, uh, that sort of stuff, was presented almost like a news report. It was presented okay. more like this is what's happening, kids, not commentary beyond that. Yeah, I think I, that's I think a little different right. too. Although it's also possible that you know, then as now, we lived in our kind of you know political bubble, so it would not have occurred to us you know to be in, or, or to be curious about. Um, uh, about uh, you know the politics of our our teachers, I, I I do think. I mean, I don't know this, but my and you know this is a focus group of one. I went to school, grew up on Long Island, went you know to school beginning to end in a you know fairly routine middle lower middle class suburban community, you know fairly mm -hmm. blue collar, um, you know. So so I I. I, I I definitely remember discussing politics with my classmates, even in elementary school, and and you know knowing um, uh, oh this kid's voting for, for for McGovern, this kid's voting for Nixon, this kid's voting for Wallace, that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it was it was not a it was not a monoculture. But to your very good point, did did we you know we did current events? Boy, boy, do I want to bring that back as a as a as an elementary school staple. But do I ever remember any kind of like political speechifying at all on behalf of my teachers at any point, K to 12? If if it was there, it went over my head. 
that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, I either don't remember it. And that was back in the days of desks where you're like a little desk and you're facing the teacher and there's a blackboard. So I yeah. like to believe I would remember it. You know, it wasn't going off in the, going on the periphery while I was doing a group project like today or on a Chromebook. We yeah. were sitting, we were supposed to be paying attention and you'd get in trouble. So I don't think I missed it. And then even going through, even going through college during the Reagan years where I knew it was very politicized and I, we knew exactly who like the left leaning professors were and they weren't, even then there were like, three or four of them that were overt. No, I mean, not that there were three or four that were left wing. There were three or four that, that wore it like a badge. We kind I, of, assumed... I, I remember my the, my, the first time I met a self-proclaimed Marxist on a college campus right. freshman year at SUNY Oswego. I remember thinking to myself, are, are you allowed to tell that to people? Like, it was just right. so out of my experience. Out of my, out right. of my it was really, it was really experience. bizarre. And there were like a few of them yeah. and you, everybody knew who they were. And there was like, a, now the rest, I guess I walked around because I was in the Northeast. I was in Maine and I, I, I knew what the politics around me were by the time college rolled around. And I mean, so we supposed our professors were left leaning or Democrats or whatever you want to call it, but it wasn't, like you said, they didn't stand up on their little stage or do their thing and be like, now this is right and that is wrong and you're a bad person if you believe otherwise. Like that absolutely didn't happen. And even in the class, I remember having a seminar with one of the professors who was more overt about being left-leaning. And even there, he encouraged differing opinions to be voiced. You know, what do you have to say? What, kind of like Donahue. You know, it was like, what do you say? What do you say? Right. So I felt like I was still free, even in the face of someone who disagreed with me. I mean, I kind of knew we were going to disagree. There was a little bit of a chill, but nothing like today. And so I think maybe that's a little bit different. Look, this, this is one of those hills I'll die on in my advanced age and 20 years into education. Um, I wrote a paper and a couple of pieces for AEI within the last year with my colleague Tracy Shira, and and we made exactly this argument, um, which is like, you know, and, and again, we can talk about CRT bans and transparency bills, etc. These are, you know, these are important, complicated things. I, I, I have some issues with them structurally. I'm not sure they're going to do what people think they're going to do. Our response to this was like, look, you know, we, what we really need is a teacher code of ethics here. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know this. This is, again, this is my assumption. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong about this. But I would wager my last dollar that the vast majority of American parents, right, left, and center, would agree to this idea that, look, we want our teachers, our students, our kids' teachers um, to, to, to lean into controversial topics. We want our kids to be able to grapple with, with difficult conversations about history, about culture, et cetera. What we don't want is teachers putting their thumb on the scale. In other words, and, and this should be part of you know the, 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 the teacher's bag of tricks. And maybe this is because I spent so long in the news business that even though, even though this is a value that is in disrepair there as well, it's what I kind of you know, came into the working world with. This idea that um, you have to, to take great care as a teacher to not privilege your own point of view. Um, to, to, to make sure that there is legitimate, genuine viewpoint diversity, give kids the, the, the skills and the interest to, to make up their own minds. And not just because I have an opinion, but why do you have that opinion? What's your view of the world that, that, that leads you to, to, you know, is it Locke? Is it Hobbes? Is it Montesquieu? What is it? Um, but I, mean, I, I just think the average American, most of us would say, yeah, look, you know, teach whatever you want. You know, the, the, the harder it is, the better. 
the more challenging it is, the better. But hey, teacher, it's not about you. You know, it's 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 about them. It's about their voice. I, I had this, you know, conversation with Jillian Ballow, who is now um, uh, working uh, in Virginia. She was the the, the superintendent uh, in Wyoming, and we kind of bonded over the story. I was I, we we told the same story, which is. Um, you know, when I was teaching my civic seminar, when she was teaching in Wyoming, we took great pride in our students not knowing what our our our, our yeah. politics were. And I would say to my kids, "Look, if you get to the end of this class and you can tell me a thing about my my politics, then I failed." You know, and and she tells this wonderful story about having a student who, uh, years after she left the classroom, when she ran as a Republican for the 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 uh, education commissioner or whatever the title is in Wyoming. You know that kid reached out to her and said, "Ha! I finally know what you're, what what party you are," because she ran, you know, as a member yeah. of that party. I, look, this is where I'm going to be, perhaps willfully naive. I just don't think that's that's too high of a bar to set for this profession. Right. I I don't either, and I especially don't think even if even if we just start with, for example, the like, not to get into politics, but you know the the Florida bill, right? Um, where we're talking about elementary school students and discussions about sex and sexuality like initiated by the teacher. So in other words, we're not talking about kid says, you know, this is my mom and this is my other mom. And you say, Oh, nice to meet you. And that's the end of the conversation. Another kid says, why does Heather have two mommies? Because that's how some families are. Let's get to our reading. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. it, they're talking about the teacher initiating, you know, deep dives into the stuff. And that is strikes me as one of the most uncontroversial or should be one of the most uncontroversial things there could ever be. It's not a political issue. It shouldn't be partisan. And yet it is. And so even if we could just start there, so we're not, we're not damaging the innocence of our children. Not every child, even by the way, in middle school is emotionally or psychologically, regardless of what their biology is, ready to handle some of the deeper more detailed and explicit conversations around these topics. And when you factor in that they're seeing and hearing and exposed to, you know, pornography and all kinds of things going on in social media, it might just overwhelm them. And I, I wonder sometimes if we're, like you said, it's, it feels like it's about the adults and not about the kids. They're not, you know, people say the kids want this, their kids need this. And it's like, says who, how do you know? Yeah. I keep wanting yeah. to say how do you know this to be true? It feels like projection. It doesn't, I don't see the data. I don't think that's a controversial statement on your, on, on your part. Look, over my shoulder behind me, there's a, there's a white binder over there on my shelf, which is my, you know, my, my portfolio for when I got my master's in education. This is not new. I can show you documentary evidence from 20 years ago where to get my master's, I had to demonstrate a, a, um, a willingness to teach for social justice. The first time I ever heard the phrase social justice was, was as a you know, 40 year old grad student. This was a disposition I needed to show in order to, to be licensed or, or to get my master's degree and to teach in, in the state of New York. Um, so, so all of these things are not new. What's interesting to me, and I've written about this some over the years, an idea that was never presented to me, either in teacher training or in five years as a full-time teacher, it's since come up in my writing, is there is, you know, there have been many court decisions that say, look, teacher, you are not a free agent. You do not have free speech. You are hired speech. That's a phrase I can't remember which court decision is from, but there was a court decision, I think out of Chicago or Indianapolis where a teacher got in trouble for kind of, you know, veering from the, 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 the curriculum. And, and the decision was that teachers are not, do, do not have free speech. They are hired speech. 
they are hired to communicate a set of, you know, the, the, the curriculum that is put in place by the, the, the district and the school board. You would think that every teacher in America would know this, right? But but we have, in other words, where, where I'm going with this long preamble is to say we have a problem right now, the way I think of it, is with the culture of education. We, we, we think we have 3.7 million teachers, most of whom, many or most of whom, think that they are, you know, um, have the, the academic freedom, which is not a concept in K-12 education. It's a higher education concept. The ability to shut the door and do what they like. And, and that is simply not the case. So, so whenever you hear about these movements, like the disrupt text movement, there was, I wrote about this, there was, you know, some, some teachers who were oh, you know, yeah. patting themselves on the back for, you know, getting, getting, I think it was um, Homer. Dr. Seuss. And all, well, also they got Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yeah, but, but my question is, wait a minute, where, what, what's the permission structure here? Where, where did you think you have the right to do that? You know, well, because nobody's ever told them they can't. So I mean, I, I don't want to imply motives here. But I think, you know, we need to kind of pull this back a little bit and remind teachers, remind ourselves that we are not, um, you know, free to kind of teach what we like, um, that this power resides sensibly um, by statute with 13,000 school boards in this country. And, right. and if you don't like it, well, OK, that I, we can disagree. But that's the system we have, you know, and, right. and, and we don't have the decision to disrupt it because we don't like it. Right. I yeah, the, I've tried to explain that to people about the hired speech versus, you know, free speech and where you are and who you are in that scenario. In other words, the students have absolutely they have free speech with the exception of they can't incite violence and, you know, like everybody else. Yeah, but, but they, they fact, don't. This, this is this is why that Florida bill that you reference is kind of, you know, bizarre. You know, it's like, uh, do, I mean, and, and boy, has it ever been, been misunderstood. Um Misrepresented. When, when, when you point out, well, you know, it only says grades K through three. You know, it only says teacher. And it, it's still well, it's like, well, wait, are you saying you want uh, gender and sexuality taught in K through three? And if not, then I mean, look, so there may be some disagreement about this, but I think most of us would just say, well, wait a minute. Why? Why would this even come up? These are these are little right. children. You know, um, exactly. But, but somebody explained it to me last night. I, I maintain a locals community and one of my members referenced someone. I, I don't know who said this, but that we've reached a point in our culture where words to a certain degree, because we use them on social media and these little compact representations like on Twitter feeds and so forth, words are becoming symbols. In, unto themselves. So you think of Mark Hamill putting, you know, gay, 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 gay. It's not about what it means. It's about symbolic representation. And so the emphasis on truth and reality, and that's another thing I meant to mention back when we were talking about things that have changed since the 60s, it, there, you had extreme views, but I, I, the core culture was one, I would say, essentially grounded in reality. Like most people, if you said certain things of fa statements of fact, like a woman is a woman. This was not a controversial statement. There were certain just statements of, of basic scientific fact that even your, even the radical would say, yeah, that's true or whatever. We have veered away from objective reality being prized value. Even if your thoughts about changing it are different, um, the recognition of what it is now we're like all over the place. And I wonder yeah. if that's fueling this too. Well, I, I, your, your, your story about this just kind of reminded me um, back to where we started. And, you know, my, my journey is kind of an accidental curriculum advocate because um, I was just, just kind of surprised that there wasn't one when I was teaching fifth grade. But that's not exactly true. Uh, there was at least one 
officially sanctioned, I must deliver this curriculum that was mandated by the New York City Department of Education. Every year I had to teach a unit on sexual education. So I didn't have a math curriculum. I didn't have a literacy curriculum. I didn't have, was not required to teach anything specific in science and history and geography or art or music, but I was mandated to discuss, forgive my, my language, unprotected anal sex with 10-year-olds. Okay. And I How did you do that? Like, I don't think I could. I didn't. Hand to God, fire me. I remember when the AP delivered this curriculum. I just read it. I went back to it and I said, suffice it to say, the words unprotected anal sex are never coming out of my mouth in front of 10-year-olds. That was it. That was it. I refused to teach it. Thank you. I mean, I'm so glad that there's a certain number of students in New York that didn't have to. Yeah. yeah. And I know what's but, happening today, but like you're telling me this is years ago. This is how many years ago? This was uh, 2000, circa 2002, 2003. But I mean, th th this is appalling for two reasons. One, I think is just inappropriate. Two, that's the only required curriculum. In other words, you were trusting me to call audibles all day, every day, teach what I like, shut the door and make my best judgment calls about what a 10 year old in the South Bronx needs. But this is the thing you're gonna mandate that I teach? Okay, okay. And I can't, you know, and like I said, now we have teachers in places like New Jersey who will are instructed to teach six year olds, kindergartners, that their parents assigned their gender at birth. And they can change it if they want. I mean, these are kids who might want to be like a kitten or a unicorn. So, I mean, as soon as you can convince a kid, a little six-year-old, that a man and a woman is just a social construct, what's to stop them from thinking, you know, I'm a unicorn, I'm a cat, I'm a whatever. I mean, my daughter wanted to be a mermaid. So once you've <clears throat> assaulted reality like that and injected mistrust between the parents, what what's next? Boy, so, it's, it's really all about trust, isn't it? I mean, I'm actually working on a, a massive piece right now that I was, I'm pleased to have this time to kind of lift up my head and talk about things other than that, because I've been dwelling on this for, for quite some time. I mean, at the end of the day, regardless of, of where you are on any of these contentious issues, um, I think I'm on firm ground to say that what we're really living through right now is an unprecedented crisis of trust in American public education. Yeah. And look, if we're really honest about it, we're all guilty of this. Like I'm a choice guy, okay? I want, I want, I want my the, the students that I taught are now their children to have the same degree of freedom of educational freedom and choice that I had. That said, I kind of get impatient a little bit with some of my choice advocate friends, some of whom you perhaps had on your on your podcast, who kind of like you know rub their hands a little bit gleefully when things are going poorly in public education. Why? Because that's and the, the worse things go in traditional public schools, the better it is for choice. You know, if things are going badly there, that, that creates a, a demand for choice. I'm not naive. I get it. And, and, and then you get on the other side, uh, you know, the kind of extreme anti-racist social justice uh, teachers who are um, no less guilty of undermining faith in American institutions. Um, they're just doing it from within, you know, and kind of sowing the seeds of distrust. This is not a game we're going to win, either of us. In, in other words... You know, and again, I want I, I, I'm a choice guy, but, the, you know, the sun is going to go out before we're in a situation in this country, I think, where the majority of kids are in schools of choice. So it just makes no sense to me to either seek to undermine the institution of public education or to seek to undermine it from within. 
these are we we are deeply invested in in I mean yes parents have a particular an extra amount of skin in the game but we all have skin in this game we are all or ought to be profoundly invested in the curriculum the culture the signals that mm -hmm. we send to every american child regardless of the the roof under which they go to school every day so i i worry that we are all a little too eager to undermine the trust that we have with this institution um, and we kind of need to get 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 right with this because uh, we're, we're, it just feels like a very dangerous game. It's it's really challenging because when you observe, even if you try to be objective and dispassionate about it, and you just sort of observe what's going on. I mean, I'm I'm wallowing in it every day, looking at this stuff. So I I start with the kid. So I'm always starting with, like you said, when you asked in the very beginning, what are they doing all day? That's my that's my starting place is there are children relying on us adults or parents and adult members of the society to educate them and prepare them to be like us. Okay. And to survive and thrive in the world. Like I'm sorry. Maybe like you, not like me. <laughs> well, I'm just saying they're, yes. you know, they're little kids and they have no choice but to be there. Okay. So yeah. I place that at the center of my thinking. And when I do that and I start thinking about reform one way or the other choice, not choice, whatever, I, and I look at the structure and I study how the unions work and I study how the school boards work and I study the sort of perverse incentives of this whole system that has become almost like a, it's almost like the matrix. It's so big and it seems to have so many self-defense mechanisms mm -hmm. against reform that sometimes actually come back and not only hurt parents and teachers, but hurt the students when you attempt them because those self, they're almost like little white blood cells that go out and be like, Rah! you know? And so I, I get, to feeling like, you know, you have two choices. You can continue to fight this and try to like nip at its edges. And if you can get a giant group of people together to try to help you with it, that'll be better. But you can try to devote your time to doing that where you're up against um, 3 million strong in the, um, in the NEA, 1.7 million strong in the AFT. You're, the Department of Education at the federal level is like who knows who's in whose pocket. It's hard to say. So you're talking about massively powerful people, some of whom have act literal police power, and the, and the ones who don't like you nudging at them have the ear of the ones with the police power. So it, it's daunting, sure. and those are realities. Like I'm not trying to be little Miss Nelly negative or anything. This is reality. Yeah. We we were described as potential domestic terrorists. So you can do that, and and that's fine. That's one option, or you can just go. And that would include fighting for choice, by the way. That would include fighting for the like choice in public ed. Or you could say, I disengage. <laughs> I, as a parent, am going to disengage and just like remove my child from the system and kind of give up on it because my kid's got 13 years or maybe it's at this point five or three or two or whatever. My little child is going every day. And that my job as a parent, first and foremost, is to get them an education and shepherd them to adulthood. I can't distract myself from that activity or leave them in the building while I spend the next year, two years, three years of their actual education that I don't like, that's not coming back. You get one childhood to do that. So where I've, I've been struggling is I don't disagree with you. It's not going away. I would love to like restructure it and do all kinds of things to it to make it less compulsory, more choicey and all that sure. more knowledge-based all the things you want. I think we would agree 100%, but I, I don't like, I, maybe I am, but I don't think I'm intentionally undermining trust by informing people 
Yeah, that no, 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 this is the state of the state. Look, you, you said you don't want to be certainly not trying to. If no, no, that's... Hey, let, 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 let's try to nuance this because I mean, you, you said you're you, you don't want to be um negative. I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression I'm being complacent either. I, I'm merely suggesting that we are um a little too eager to um to to cast shade on the flavors of education that we don't like. Um, I want choice. I'm a choice guy. That does not mean axiomatically that I am anti-public schools. I am not anti-public schools. Um, it's, as, it's as simple as that. In other words, when you when you view all of this through the through the lens of advocacy and politics, there's a bit of a moral hazard there. You know, in other words, it, you, you you your side benefits when the other side loses. But I'm right. really it's not a zero-sum game mm -hmm. um, that we we have a, a, an interest in. I mean, look, I've said this for years, um, but long before I understood anything that I know now about, you know, choice and charters and you know Milton Friedman and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was there was a um, you know I remember thinking I, I I would send my students, my Southbound students, I would send them to the Lucifer School. I would say this: they could go to the Lucifer School if they would end up you know being able to read and do math on grade level, and I meant it. In other words, the public's interest is in the outcome, not under the real estate, not, not the roof under which that that happens. So right. it, it's simply, I have a, I, I try to maintain a values-neutral approach to this. I don't care whether it's public, private, charter, homeschool, sitting under a tree with with a slate. It's in all of our interests that every child learn how to read, be engaged, et cetera. Of course. And yeah. he's not as interested as, as others are in the good, better, best, you know, which, which is the best way, et cetera. I, I want it really should be the determined by the family. It sure. should be determined I mean, by the family and the, and what their child needs and so forth. I mean, that's how I don't ever want to be the guy who says that school sucks. No kid should go to that. Like, okay, somebody's choosing that school. How do we make that school? It may not be my choice. How do we make that school better? Right. I mean, we might be observing that it's not doing a good job, you know, but I, I get your point. Um, I, I have called myself a government compulsory school abolitionist, meaning that the way it is right now where you're compelled to go to the zip code thing and here's where you go and you don't have a choice. And, and that <clears throat> type of system where it, it, it's really so compulsory in every respect. And you have to like, you have to either be rich, like you said, or you have to, have, you know, I'm against that because I I do think that the parents should be able to find what works best for their children, even if it is a public school, right? Okay, yeah. so I just don't like the compulsory model. I have, I will admit, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I think I've been guilty of a sort of a genetic fallacy in the sense that because I know a lot about public school history in America and like who created it and on what grounds and what their goals were, and there's a lot of xenophobia and there's a lot of racism and stuff like that. I think I've been guilty of carrying that forward and saying, and therefore, right? Kind of how people said, and therefore America. And that's wrong. I shouldn't do that. But I do think it's important when we're looking at reform to understand the origins to at least say, have we sufficiently changed that? In other words, have we taken a hard look, just like with the country, have we taken a hard look at our origins and, and the origin story of public education and made sure that we're not accidentally perpetuating some of those things that yeah. I do believe resulted in what you saw with the iniquities in the different schools? Yeah. See, that's where I go back to sort of the origins. Say it was kind of set up like this, guys, you know, and yeah. it, if you really want to change it, you do have to come face to face with that and accept on the school side of things, 
some blame. It's not all everybody outside. Inside the institution needs to take a hard look at its own structure, I think. Oh, no, no question. And and to bring this full circle, there's a reason that I spend most of my time um, dwelling on teaching and learning as opposed to the structures, as opposed to, you know, funding and chartering and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Because, you know, as a practical, so I'm, I'm speaking to you today, you know, I live in upstate New York in a fairly rural community now. Um, choice is a meaningless construct here. Like there is the, the 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 local central school district. That's where you send your kids. Even if choices, I mean, the the population base just does not exist to support cho- choice on a meaningful. Are you level. back in yes. Oswego? No, no, no. I mean, I'm in a little oh. town by, uh, called Greenville, New York, about about oh, okay. uh, half an hour of of of, of Albany. Okay. Um, okay. People here, uh, the, the 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 school is this is the central hub of activity in this community. It's where your kids go to play sports. Uh, you know, it's where the, the 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 fundraisers happen on and on and on. So it's not just a school. It's kind of you know a civic a civic hub. I'm I'm sure. I mean, I know there are some fairly you know well off people in this area who might you know send their kids up to Albany Academy, which is a nice you know private school about a half an hour from here. But as a practical matter, if you live here, that's where your kids go. And that's not right. going to change in any meaningful way anytime soon. Um, do I not have an interest in that because I don't have kids in that school? Of course not. I mean, I'm deeply interested. This is my community. The the, the signals sure. that these children get matter deeply to to me. The the the, the caliber of education will materially affect the, this community's quality of life mm-hmm. until I'm you know long uh, under the ground. Um, so we all have a vested interest in that choice is just never going to be the thing that makes my local school district good, better, best, or, you know, et cetera. It's just, it's a non-starter here. That doesn't mean that choice is not an, uh, an important thing to, to, to continue to work for, but I'm, I'm really making a structural point. There are some parts of this, of this country that choices is not a meaningful construct for. And, and, and the other thing too, Deb, is that Look, you know, it's not as if we're not capable of delivering education in a different way. I'm, I'm, I'm sounding like I'm not a choice guy. I promise you, I love choice. No, but I know I mean, you do. I de- no, this is. I'm actually really appreciating this because you're 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 educating me. Like there's there are things that I'm realizing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so well, it's really good that you do. We have the ability now to deliver education in a different format. We've yeah. done it for the last two years when people were doing school like this. So it's not yeah. as if we don't know how to do this. You know, when people l- lament, you know, oh, schools haven't changed in 150 years. It's not because we're hidebound. It's because we like it. Okay. We like sending our kids to this thing called a school where they sit in a room with 24 other kids and there's a teacher in the front of the room. That is an enduring cultural habit. I think we just have so, an imaginary picture of what it is still. And it's well, they sentimentalize it excessively, yeah. but I mean, you know, I always point out to people, it's not like we can't disrupt this. Sometimes we just choose not to. But if that's the case, how do, really we make good it point. How, do we, how do we make it more efficacious for children? Right. And that and that's kind of what I was pointing to is that um, we need to we need to figure out how we disrupt it um, in the sense that. I, in, the, in the sense that we, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to ask for what will really work or what we think will really work. And we need to know where to go to do that. Because I think a lot of people are going to school board meetings and that's not really the place to go, but where is the place to go and so forth. I don't know about that. I, I'm, I'm kind it of depends on the it. state. It, you're enjoying yeah. it. It is educating a lot of parents, but you know, um, 
we could do a whole show on that. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but the point is that oh, can it's, we please? it's a great rabbit hole. Uh, well, the can point we, is the point we, I would make, I guess, is that. I was going to make one point really quickly. Okay. I mean, as a, as a person who I've always said, civic education is my side hustle. How does it make sense for me to, to work, to encourage children to be civically engaged, raise their voice, go to meetings, yell and scream and shout, and then condemn it when people do that. No, like, no, this is what we do in this country. This is called self-government. It's hard, but this is what we do. I applaud it. It's great. Yeah. I don't have to and, agree with what we're doing, but right. this is, this is how we roll. No, it's, it's true. It's just, I, I mean, I'm, I, I guess I'm, thinking more pragmatically in the sense of like, yes, do this. Just you got to go to yeah. this body, not that body, whatever, or whatever. Um, so, so we've been talking a long time and I, and I want to get to a couple other things where I don't want them to be done. You know, don't want to finish without touching them. The first one is um, because somebody asked in the chat, you brought up um, a diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice emphasis, even your, your master's degree that you had to get. Um, Right now, there's sort of one dominant way of doing it. In other words, of infusing the curriculum with the equity or the diversity inclusion. It's like the intersectional model. It's the critical theory model and so forth. The commenter asked, what do you think of something like Chloe Valderi or theory of racelessness or some of the others? In other words, do you think there's value in direct instruction of diversity, equity, inclusion, race, et cetera, to the students and we just need a different modality or a different type of way of doing it? Or do you think we should go back to the old way? I, I, the, what I remember, which is where it was in, in the curriculum, in other words, in our history lessons and our literature that we read and so forth, it wasn't in your face. It was just, you would read about characters having these conflicts and you would discuss it. And so it would come out in those discussions about the liberal values and tolerance and things like that. It wasn't like, you need to do this. What's your thought? Um, I wrote a chapter in a forthcoming book for the Heritage Foundation, which I'm going to be really interested to see how it lands, if it gets any attention whatsoever. Um, I mean, I've been accused of being a contrarian, and I don't, I, I don't try to be, but you know, every now and then ideas just seize me. So sorry, this is going to be a hard one to describe quickly, okay. but there's, there's um, an Australian, I think she's an Australian, political scientist by the name of Karen Stenner. Um, and a few years ago, she, uh, she wrote a piece, or Jonathan Haidt wrote a piece about her work, which mostly, and I'm gonna summarize a, a complex body of work really, really badly. Um, she, she focuses on authoritarian impulses that we have. And, mm -hmm. and to summarize Karen Stenner overly broadly, her point is that authoritarian mindsets are not uh, are, are not fixed. That we all have what I think I think she described as an authoritarian button on our forehead that can get activated under under certain circumstances, and and what that that means is that when your when your in group is threatened, that's when that authoritarian uh, impulse yeah. comes to the fore. She was not writing about K twelve education. That's what I do, yeah. um, but I was fascinated by her work because it suggests to me that we're quite literally doing it wrong. In other words, if what, what, are, what is the, the, the noble impulse behind DEI work? We want yeah. children, quite rightly, to feel safe and valued regardless of, of their identity, gender, et cetera. We, we right. want you know, that inclusive, that, that is not a bad thing, that's a good thing. But right. what if we're doing it wrong? 
Exactly. What her work suggested to me is that when you dwell on difference, you create antagonism to difference. Mm. A way to to create conditions where we are genuinely diverse and inclusive and mean it is this is directly from from Karen Stenner is to valorize sameness. Yes. Remember when we, we were kids and in school where we had we we went to school in the last best age of the melting pot, right? And look, the melting pot fell into into dis, disabuse or abuse for for lots of good reasons. Lots of folks were not allowed to melt, but that impulse, e pluribus unum, you know, that impulse that wherever you came from, you're an American. Wouldn't it be ironic if we had it right? If that was the way to create the conditions that valorize mm -hmm. diversity, and now we're completely screwing it up. I mean, I don't want to get out over my skis, but I think it's an it's an interesting thought exercise to ask the question. Our intentions are good, but maybe we're actually making it worse. Right. And I I, I think that we are. I mean, I'll, I'll go out right. I'll go way out over my skis and I'll say it. Um, I think that we are. I mean, I think we've seen higher instances of, you know, we've just this year seen more violence in the schools that is specifically race based. We've seen um, more antagonism, so-called affinity groups or cropping up based on the students wanting them, which is really sad. Um, so it, it seems to be going backwards. I feel like it's regressive and regressive to a place that I never lived. In other words, you know, I mean, maybe I was kind of spoiled. I grew up in the Northeast. Um, I, you know, I grew up in New York City and I went to schools and then in, in New England and so forth. And we didn't have separation like that. It was, I mean, you know, might have, you might see more of the kids who, you know, the black kids might sit together a little bit at lunch sometimes, but it was not exclusive. It wasn't like you couldn't go sit down. There were no affinity groups. It wasn't like that. And I just don't even know that world. That's a world I've never lived in and I don't really want to live there. So I, yeah. I will go on out on that limb. Um, the next question though, I do want to ask you, we did talk briefly about teachers and we talked about them being hard speech and so forth. Now you recently mentioned, I think it was on Twitter, you said one of my lingering questions, and that's kind of where I got the title after 20 years is still kind of like, why are we still doing certain things wrong as far as educating teachers and as far as what we're putting into the classroom that why are we, you know, I'm curious what your other lingering questions might be. If that's one, if there's right. others that are more pressing, what still puzzles you like, why are we doing this? Yeah. I'm, well, I, I, I am kind of surprised. I mean, you know, we don't talk a lot about ed reform anymore. It was kind of like the dominant, you know, um, uh, stream of you know, political um, pushes of education for the last 20 years. Now, I mean, the ed, ed reform movement, such as it is, is kind of fractured and 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 not cohesive. But I was I've I've been surprised for most of the last twenty years how we've given ed schools a pass. Basically, we yeah. try to fix everything in education, but we've just kind of ignored ed schools. And I mean, having been to you know to, to ed school conscripted, I guess I would say, because I don't know that it added value to my teaching. Um, it it continues to kind of shock and surprise me. Um, how the average graduate of an American school of education is simply not well prepared to teach. And I think it's because of the way, you know, the, 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 the value set of, of, of ed schools, it tends more to be about your disposition. It's, they, they consider, you know, um, teaching classroom management, uh, et cetera, beneath their dignity. I mean, I, I've made a rueful joke about this over the years that if we, that if we trained air traffic controllers, the way we train teachers, we would tell new air traffic controllers, oh, oh, you crashed a plane? Well, that look, that that happens. You know, you're new. It's your first year. You know, it'll, you'll get better. Um, you know, we, we, we would not accept the level of failure in any other profession that we almost make a virtue of in, in, in education. Right. I mean, it's almost like a hazing ritual. We think it's kind of, you know, that's how we earn our stripes, you know. 
Right. In, in in my in my perfect world, um, you know, when I, when I'm in charge of, of of American education, and please God, never let that day come. <laughs> I, I always point out that, like, look, when when my Apple laptop breaks, I don't take it to the hardware store. I take it to the Genius Bar because there are qualified people there who know how to work on this device. Well, why don't we train teachers that way? In other words, if I'm if I'm operating or if I'm opening a core knowledge school or a classical education school or a Montessori school, I want to hire a teacher who understands, knows, and has been trained in those, in, in, in that pedagogy, in that curriculum. Wouldn't it make right. more sense if we certified teachers to teach specific, not just subjects, but specific curricula? Um, so that, you know, but 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 this this is redolent of, oh, now you're now you're treating teaching like a um a craft or a skill and not a profession. Um, yeah, guilty is charged. I guess that's exactly what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly beats factory worker, which is what, to a certain degree, the emphasis on unions and the collective bargaining, and you can't work past three without overtime. And I mean, you know, I was when my brief tenure as a public school teacher. Here's here's why I didn't have a, get a permanent spot or a permanent contract, and then I just decided to leave. Um, two things. One, I kept violating union rules. Apparently. I wasn't very good at remembering what I was supposed to do and not supposed to do. And I kept wanting to give to my students and I stayed after school and I talked to my, the parents of my kids whenever they wanted. And I was, I just saw it as my calling. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. It's a job. It's a profession. Professions don't end at 3 PM or whatever. They professionals work until the job is done. I did write pl lesson plans, even though they weren't required of me Then I had a teacher confront me in the hallway and say, you're making us look bad. So I did the job the way I thought was the professional way to do it, and I got nothing but grief. The second reason was I was pulled aside by my principal multiple times and informed that I was not nurturing enough. And I asked what that meant, and can you please give me an example? Because I had only glowing comments from the parents. I was teaching first grade. The kids seemed to love me. They would like run up and greet me, you know, and so forth. So I couldn't understand when she was deciding because she said, every time I stop by your classroom or I walk past, she said, I hear you speaking in the same voice that you speak to me. And I said, oh, okay, it's my voice. Yeah. <laughs> she said, well, voice think about this other teacher. And she gave an example of another teacher who had gone to the same graduate school. She said, we sort of hired you because you went to the same graduate school and look at how she speaks. And I'm thinking that's exactly who she is, though. She's got that little sweet sing songy voice like this. <laughs> I said, I couldn't be that person if I tried. Like it would be so fake. And I tried politely to tell the principal, I said, if there's one thing I've learned about children, it's that they have like a detector when you're not true to yourself, when you're being fake. Yeah. They don't trust you. They're wondering what's going on. And I said, if yeah, I teachers, suddenly. Yeah, I, I make this point all the time. Like, you know, in, in 180 days times six hours, you are who you are. You know, you cannot stay in character, you know, for, for that amount of time. No. Um, so you have to learn to, to, to work with the personality that you have because it's, you know, you're not going to. I wasn't mean. Like she wasn't saying like you're mean to them or you're too harsh yeah. to them or you're too adult to them or you're using big words. It was just my tone. It was literally the tone of my voice. And I even asked her, I said, is the quality of my work off or the results? So the kids are doing really well. She said, yeah, but I just, it's really a problem. And so when, when you mentioned disposition, I was like, yeah, guilty. I'm, I'm laughing because I, I'd mentioned earlier that, I, you know, my school was a teacher's college reading and writing project, Lucy Calkins uh, shop. Um, yeah. And it became a cartoon to me after a while. Every staff developer and teacher from that place, they ended their sentences with question marks. Oh, my God. Up top. I can't see it. 
I can't stand it. And I wondered, did you learn how to teach this or is this required? Um, It's like, I can't stand it. It was it was like nails on a blackboard to me I that I felt it. like, am I supposed to talk like this? Um, oh, yeah. And never, then never adopted that patois. Add vocal fry to up talk. Oh my god! I mean, like, oh, I can't even, right? <laughs> so but, no, but it's it's so true. So I uh, completely agree with you. The pipeline, the you know, teacher education. I think I'll be honest with you. I think that's where we actually need to focus because we've got a lot of leaving and retiring teachers. And you can, I tell parents all the time, you can pass legislation, you can complain, you can do so many things, but at the end of the day, unless you're prepared to sue, the teacher's going to close the door and the teacher's going to do what the teacher's going to do unless the principal and the superintendent, everybody's going to enforce some kind of code of ethics. And that's yeah. not like it happens. You've got literally millions and millions of teachers. You need to concern yourself with, like you said, that code of ethics on the one end and on the other end, how are the new teachers being trained? Because if you can, if you can reform that, you win. Yeah, I'll, I'll go one step further. I'll, I'll see you and raise you, I guess, to use a okay. poker analogy. Um, you know, and again, I, I think my ed reform credentials are in pretty good order. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about this stuff, but, and maybe this is because of my classroom lens. I, I make this point all the time. This is this is maybe the, the hill I will die on. Um, we have 3.7 million American teachers. The law of large numbers suggests that if you have 3.7 million of anybody doing anything, you're going to have a range, you know, from, you know, saints and superstars and people you'd lay down in traffic to have your kid in that class to people who maybe should be doing something different for a living. Um, I, I like to invoke the late Donald Rumsfeld, who said, you know, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had. Yes, well, you go to school with teachers you have, not the teachers you wish you had. If everything that we do in education policy and reform is predicated on the notion that we are going to raise their level, that we are going to get the cognitive elite, the saints and superstars, well, God didn't make enough of those. So you have to make this job doable by the men and women that we have. And, and if the men and women that we have cannot do this job um, at, a, at a good enough level, the, the answer can never be change those people. The answer must be change the job. Because again, the law of large numbers, if, if we are going to depend on nearly 4 million ordinary men and women to educate our children, it must be a job that 4 million ordinary men and women can do well. That is really challenging. I mean, that's a tall order because you're talking about, um, you're talking about a job that is in they're adding to the job. They're not taking away. Well, that's so, the whole thing. And and now we're, we're now we're asking them to be, you know, in addition to being, you know, psychologists. Uh, we we want them to be mental health counselors as well. And you know, I, I, I point this out, and people, you know, act like I've sprouted horns. Like, why why don't you do, do you hate children? It's like, no, I, I I hate children having to 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 be in in schools where we ask their teachers to do too many things and none of them well. No, that's not the same thing as mixed school. Um, that's not the same thing as dumbing it down. It's the same thing as recognizing that human beings have cognitive limits. And right. and if you keep asking teachers to do more and not take away, you know, um, Dylan William is, is brilliant on this. It's not like the stuff that you're taking away isn't important, um, but but there's only so much you can do. You know, and if you if you right. keep asking to do more, some things are going to go badly. You know, and, and, and it's one thing when your algebra lesson goes badly. It's another thing entirely when your mental health lesson goes badly. Yes, because then you're really violating 
all the codes of ethics. I mean, you're messing around. It, it's a tough job to be a clinician for children in the first place when yeah. you're trained sure. um, because they're children. Um, and there's a whole, you know, their capacity for reason, their desire to open up to total strangers. There's just so many things in play. And when you take a teacher and there's that risk of like, are you going to tell my the other students? Are you going to, you know, like it's just, they're not counselors. They're not trained for that. And yeah. I also think, as you pointed out before, that if you're constantly taking someone's mental health temperature, you're asking them to constantly take their own mental health temperature. And one of the best, most important things to encourage people to do who are going through a tough time is to distract themselves and not, not never think about it, but find a safe place where you don't have to be mired down and thinking about whatever's troubling you. And for some kids, as you've probably noticed, if things are not so great at home, sometimes school is your safe. If school is the place you go to like, be distracted, think about other things, see your friends, focus on something else. So if somebody's constantly saying, let's talk about your parents, let's talk about what's going on at home, it could very well add to your trauma. It could very well, you know, so they're they're not really respecting children's mental health if they're constantly yeah. making them think about it. And I could be wrong about this, but I'm not sure um, that teachers need a whole lot of directives to be empathetic. I mean, if you are yeah. not somebody who likes children um, and likes being around children and is is naturally concerned with their well-being, you know, you, you, you probably get in a different line at career day. You know, you One might would you know, hope. You probably get in a line that says, you know, a, a, accountant or lighthouse keeper or something like that. You're not like in the line that says elementary school teacher. So let's let's hope that we don't have to remind teachers to be empathetic. Um, well, and, let's, I mean, the challenge is, and some detractors have said that, uh, for a host of reasons, which, you know, we could, you know, figure out pretty easily. Um, ed school and becoming a teacher, in, in particular, an elementary school teacher, uh, it, it seems to some people like an easy job in the sense, that, not easy, but what I'm saying is, yeah. oh, I get my well. summers off. I get great benefits. I, I get a respected white collar career where people in the community are going to look at me as a hero and they won't really know whether I'm doing a great job or not, but whatever. I mean, I'm talking very cynically, obviously this is a small percentage, but I'm saying that that can, could be a draw and I have protection of a union. I have a guarantee this and that and the other and so forth. So that could be a draw for people who actually maybe don't like kids very much because I've seen enough TikToks of the past two years of teachers who I think to myself, why are you teaching? You so obviously can't stand children. I, I don't know, but I mean, I, you know, you might be right. I mean, I, I think we've all had the experience. I remember, you know, my, that's my certification is elementary ed. Um, can I think of teachers who I thought, wow, you really don't like kids? Sure. Can, are they still teaching? They are not, you know, you learn, you learn pretty quickly, um, you know, whether or not this is, this is, is this is for you or not. Look, you know, the other thing too is that, um, you know, and sorry, this, I don't know what, don't want, don't know why this idea popped into my head when you were speaking just now, but it did. Um, I, I think um, we will know that we are serious about education when kind of most of our energy and most of our talent goes to early childhood ed. Um, oh, 100%. Yeah. We didn't get to this, you know, today and maybe we, we can do it another time. But I mean, you know, we spend so much time. I used to tell my fifth graders this all the time. It's one of the things I'm sure they, you know, 30, 20 years later, they still remember me for. I say, I would always say, it's easier to keep up than catch up. Well, that's all we do in education, right? Is is we don't keep up. And so we play catch up forever. 
um, when our, our most talented and energetic educators are in K-1 and 2, when we are really applying ourselves to literacy in earnest, then I'll know we're serious. You know, in other words, when right now, when elementary education ceases being about, oh, I like being with kids all day, and no, this is intellectually serious work, this is how we get kids to the intellectual starting line of, of reading, then I will know that we have turn, turned a corner. I love that. I absolutely love that. And I hope sometime you will come back and let's just do a whole show on early childhood education because I could not agree more. I'm working with a group out in California called Save Math, and they're working on pushing back on the new math framework that's coming from the politicizing math and so forth. So much of the focus of that is like middle school forward. And I I watched sort of a webinar with some of the uh, people evaluating it. And they said, well, you know, I'm teaching high school math. And when, you know, two thirds of my class is coming to me and they can't read <laughs> and, you know, there's really nothing I can do, you know, so if they're failing math or they're failing to go on to advanced math or that we're, we're, we're way too late in the process. I can't remediate this. This isn't even about the math because of the literacy problems. And we have, you know, some schools like in Baltimore where not a single graduate is proficient in reading or math for that matter. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a non-starter. And like you said, it happens in those early years, elementary school, people really don't understand. I don't think, I mean, I think even parents don't understand how incredibly important. And if your child gets a third grade and they've, you know, and they're really stumbling and they just keep, let's keep going, keep on going. It's like an assembly line. It, it just gets exponentially harder. And you, that's where you get so many of the other problems that we say we want to solve, like behavior problems, ADD, you know, all the things often, very, very often trace back to inorganic origins. Well, no question. Of- Look, I, I've made this point, you know, it, I'm, I'm semi-serious about this because I always try to think of the unintended consequences of things like this. But, you know, you know, federal law, we test every kid in reading and math grades three through eight. I could convince myself that reading tests should not start in third grade. I could convince myself that they should stop in third grade. And what I mean by that is if we nail the decoding piece, if we get every kid to third grade as a fluent decoder, then the rest of their education, you know, the old cliche, overly broad, but, you know, first you learn to read, then you read to learn. Well, right now we have too many kids who do neither, you know. So if we if we could get every kid to the to the to the decoding and fluency starting line by third grade, if we did only that, man, we would have a much more effective education system. That is great, and also probably a really good place to to end it. Was there anything that we that you oh. wanted to say as a final point or anything like that? Because that's that. I mean, how do we top that? <laughs> Between, let's let's do this again because I mean definitely. I, uh, full disclosure, before we started, I said, you, you book 90 minutes? I can't talk for 90 minutes. I could talk for- or I And could, here we are. Talk with you for, for, for the entire afternoon. So let's let's do this yeah. again. Let's definitely do it because I really want to go deeper into that early childhood. That is definitely my personal, like that's where my heart is. And even though if I were to go back in the classroom right now, I would probably go into middle school. But part of why I don't is, as you point out, like, I don't really want to be a remedial person. I want to go into a middle school setting where I am teaching the readers, the kids, where I can share with them my passion for literature, my passion for history, my passion for civics, these things, and really get them to dive in, be excited about this material, this content, but they have to be reading. 
So maybe I would have to go back to first grade for a while. So because I, I taught my children to read and they're avid, proficient readers. And I did it all by myself. So anyway, I cannot thank you enough for taking this amount of time to talk to us. Uh, for those of you wondering, the replay will be up immediately. So, and for those listening on the replay, thank you. Um, you can find Robert on Twitter at uh, Robert. I think you're R. Pondicio. R. Pondicio. I'm not, I'm not hard to find. Okay. And, um, you know, I highly recommend the book too, How the Other Half Learns. Um, because you will really dive into sort of charter school experience. There's, you know, some controversial stuff in there, but it's, if you're a choice person, it's a great, it's a great book. Um, so thank you everybody for coming. Thank you so much, Robert. And we will do this again. Have a great Thanks. afternoon, everyone. Bye.